Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. tomorrow. We service what we sell. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. Money cheerfully refunded. One size fits all. This offer limited to the first hundred people who call in. Your luggage isn't lost, it's just misplaced. Leave your resume and we'll keep it on file. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I just need five minutes of your time. Your table will be ready in just a minute. Open wide, this won't hurt a bit. Let's have lunch sometime. It's not the money, it's the principle of the thing. And perhaps the most commonly told lie today is... When all of us click, I have read and agree to the terms of this agreement. I won't ask for a show of hands on how many of those lies you've told, because I know better. Now, while all these lies are common in America today, there are some lies that have a much further reach than just one culture and one time period. There are some lies that go back to the very Garden of Eden, where a serpent spoke with a silver tongue. And over the last few weeks, we've been examining the lies, the ancient lies of our adversary, Satan. This series, Do You Know Your Enemy, is all about Satan and the tactics that he most commonly uses in his war against God's creations. Many people don't know, or perhaps worse, don't believe in a literal Satan, yet the Bible is exceedingly clear that he exists, and the evidence of his handiwork is all around us in the suffering, pain, and death that we've come to expect in this world. But therein lies the core of the lie that we examine today, the Bible as the word of God. Many people don't believe in Satan because they have believed the lie that Satan spreads that the word of God is unreliable, full of contradictions, riddled with errors. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard that the Bible is full of contradictions and errors, that it's not reliable? It's been changed and altered by men over the years, and it's nothing like the original. I'm sure you have. In recent years, it's become increasingly popular to say that the Bible is unreliable and trustworthy, even in churches. Books have been written on the topic. Popular movies have used it as the faulty idea, or have used the faulty idea as their premise. And even our supposedly Christian institutions of higher learning have stopped teaching about the Bible as the inerrant and infallible word of God. The lie is everywhere and spoken by so many that I'm sure you've wondered whether or not it's actually true. But I have a question for you. If everyone believes a lie, 
Does that make it true? If everybody believes a lie, does that make it true? It may be commonly spoken by some of the intellectuals and some of the preachers and many of the people in our culture, but just because it's spoken over and over again by a multitude of people, does it make it true? If everyone believes a fictitious statement, does that suddenly make it reality? Of course not. That's absurd. But how then do we tell truth from lie, fiction from reality? We have to educate ourselves. Today you're going to get a crash course in, bib in uh, biblical reliability, in what's called textual criticism, and even a little bit of practical apologetics along the way. Now, those are all things that you could honestly spend your entire life studying and going to seminary to pursue, but I'm going to try to cram it all into about 25 minutes. So buckle up, buttercup, it's going to be rough. <laughs> Let's start with biblical reliability. Is the Bible historically reliable? How do you know that we have the Word of God? Hasn't it been changed by mankind uh, throughout the centuries so that it's nothing like the original autographs, the original writings of the authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How does one even gauge the reliability of an ancient text? Satan's lie is that the Bible is not reliable and has been altered, but let's take a look at the evidence, not at the rumor. When addressing ancient historical texts like the letters, records, testimonies, and histories that are contained in the Bible, archaeologists, anthropologists, and scholars of all kinds first look at the number of copies of a specific text. If all there is in the entire world of an ancient text is one copy, there's nothing to compare and contrast it to. Depending upon the contents of that ancient text, it may or may not be historically significant, but there's nothing really to compare it or contrast it to if you only have one copy. I remember reading something one time uh, about an over-eager doctoral student who wrote about a list of item, items uh, that had recently been discovered on what he, and what he believed um, this, this list of items was. He believed that this list of items that he had found, this little piece of parchment that there was no other copy of in the entire world, was a list of items used in an ancient cultic ritual. He wrote extensively about this discovery, assuming that he was all the time correct, and that the item was indeed significant, meaning it was important historically. He was later publicly humiliated as the majority of scholars who examined his evidence concluded that it was just an ancient shopping list. Interesting, isn't it? Someone had written down what the items that they needed, and they had thrown away this little scrap of paper with the rubbish. He had believed because one side of the paper was something and the other side was something different and because this was a list of ingredients that was included on the opposite side of a seemingly religious text that the two were related, but not necessarily. How many of you have ever taken a scrap of paper that was used for something else once and then wrote something else on the back of it, like a shopping list? We all do, right? You'll see me on a Sunday morning scramble to try to find a bulletin when you're telling me a prayer request so I can write it down. Okay? So is that person who we worship because it's included on a bulletin? 
These people worship that person. They find that scrap of paper a thousand years from now. Heaven forbid that I keep it in my office for that long that it suddenly becomes treasure. So anyway, but if somebody discovers that little piece of paper and they relate the Christian faith to this person's name and they believe that we worshipped and believed and adored this person because their name was found on that document, they've gotten it wrong. You can't make assumptions like that. And yet, unfortunately, many doctoral candidates do. Many of the supposedly well-educated people out there make really stupid mistakes. You can't always relate one thing to the other. This doctoral candidate, I have no idea where they disappeared to. They've disappeared into obscurity because of their public humiliation. Number of copies, the context of the copies of an ancient manuscript are very important pieces of information. They kind of help make or break the case for something. For example, many of you have undoubtedly at least heard of Homer, the Greek author uh, of the iconic stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Maybe you even had to read pieces of these in high school or college. Even if you don't realize it, you've probably seen things that were influenced by Homer's works if you haven't read the works themselves. For example, how many of you remember the Brad Pitt movie, Troy? Anybody remember that, Troy? Pretty decent movie, okay? I'm not a huge Brad Pitt fan, but it was a pretty decent movie. Helen of Troy, a little bit older movie, but classic. Ulysses, older movie, but very classic. But there was a movie that was probably a little bit more recent that most of us are familiar with that paid... Uh, homage to Homer. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, brother, where art thou? It was an epic odyssey, a journey that was undertaken by someone, and it was kind of based roughly on Homer's odyssey. In the ap academic worlds of history, archaeology, and textual criticism, it is unthinkable for someone to doubt the authenticity and reliability of Homer's works as actually being written by a man named Homer and being very close to the original writings penned by his own hand. We know Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know this. It's settled historical fact. Okay? Nobody, no historical scholar would ever question that. They would be laughed out of academic circles. And rightfully so. The number of ancient manuscripts that show us Homer's work and uh, testify to it being attributed to his own hand writing it, uh, the evidence is extensive. The number of copies is significant. Uh, there exist roughly, still today, 643 ancient copies of Homer's work, the Iliad. And scholars believe that based on those 643 copies, that we possess a modern copy uh, of the original autograph uh, that is within 95% accuracy. Think about that. 643 copies, 95% accuracy. That's pretty good, right? It's pretty significant. Okay? If somebody's 95% accurate, that's pretty good odds. Okay? If you've got a medical condition and the doctor says 95% chance, you're going to have you know, another 20 years. You're going to come away thinking, that's great. Okay? You're going to come away thinking, that's great odds, 95%. That's pretty cool. And I, thinking about how old this document is, that's pretty significant. Thinking about the fact that this document, this story, this collection of stories, really, 
has survived for over 2,800 years with that degree of accuracy is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But here's the funny thing. The Iliad has nothing on the New Testament in terms of reliability, in terms of authenticity, in terms of accuracy. It pales in comparison to the New Testament when we use the same historical indicators that scholars, archaeologists, anthropologists, and others use to determine accuracy and authenticity and reliability. Here's why. Let's take a look at the numbers. The number of copies of the Iliad, I told you just a second ago, 643. Guess how many number of copies there are for the New Testament? Over 5,600 and that's, of 2000, that's as of 2008. There have been some other discoveries, and I'm sure there will continue to be more discoveries that corroborate the New Testament. But let's just go with that number for the sake of clarity. 5,600 versus 643. Not even close. The accuracy rating, let's go with that. Based on the number of copies, when we compare them side by side, we look at them and say, what are the variants? This one has the, the uh, word, uh, you know, uh, the here, whereas this one omits that word. We look at the accuracy of those number of copies. The Iliad, 95% accuracy. Accuracy rating of the New Testament. Even by the most critical textual scholar, Who's honest? 99.5%. Christian scholars think it's much higher. They say that based on those same indicators that the reliability, the, the accuracy rating of the text, meaning we have almost exactly word for word what was originally penned by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the others, 99.999%. Think about that. It's pretty impressive. 2,000 years later, we have almost exactly word for word, dot for dot, comma for comma, the exact statements of these people who lived and saw Jesus with their own eyes. Interesting, isn't it? Weighing in at less than one-eighth of the New Testament's number of copies, the Iliad warrants such a strong reliability and accuracy rating, yet somehow in the atheist world, magically the Bible doesn't merit. It doesn't measure up. Even though we have more copies, greater accuracy rating, and thus it is more reliable by all measures of the term. But that's not all. There are other indicators used in measuring accuracy and reliability and determining if we actually have anything close to the original document penned in the author's own hand. For example, the time gap between the author who originally wrote the autograph, written in their own hand, and the earliest copies of those manuscripts of his works. Now here's the fun thing. People will tell you all the time, the Bible was copied over and over and over again. It's error-ridden because of that. Not true. All ancient manuscripts are copies. You're not going to find any testimony from the first century that is original autograph. You're not. You're going to find copies. Okay? You're going to find copies. You're not going to find all these original pieces. And if they are, it's highly questionable. Highly questionable when somebody makes that statement. This is the original autograph of so-and-so. Uh, okay. How do you know? 
Are you 100% sure? Okay. So it's not, not likely. Not impossible, but not likely. Okay. Most of what we have uh, is very, uh, very much been copied several times over. Some of our earliest copies are very close to the time period, though, which is very fascinating to me, because the time gap is important. The time gap between the original document and the copies is very important. What changed during that time period? Who um, you know, lived during that time period? Did they actually bear witness to what is taking place? Or is this something that generations down the line, they're just reciting what they've been told? Now, with Homer's Iliad, what do you think the time gap is? Homer lived and wrote around roughly 800 B.C., roughly. Now, the earliest manuscript copies of the Iliad that we possess are from 400 B.C. That means that a time gap of about 400 years exists between the original author's copy and the earliest copies that someone else made of his work. Now, I should point out, while that seems like a really long time to you and me, 400 years, that's a pretty long time, that seems pretty long to you and I, but that's definitely not long when we compare it to some of the other most influential ancient manuscripts and writings from people like Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, Thucydides. These are all names that in the scholarly world, everybody knows and everybody accepts these writings as important and historic. And they believe that they're direct copies of the autographs written from these people. But here's the fun part. The time gap between the original writings of these people and the earliest copies we possess, it's not 400 years. It's not 800 years. It's not even 1,000 years. It is 1,300 to 1,400 years. Think about that. The guy wrote it, and then the earliest copy we have of it is 13 to 1,400 years later. That's huge! And you're going to tell me you believe that's more accurate than the Bible? What's the time gap with the Bible, though? I'm getting there. There is a time gap when we look at biblical texts. I'm not going to lie to you. There is a time gap between the autographs and the first copies. But here's the fun part. The time gap between the autograph and the original copies for our New Testament copies, even by the most critical textual critic. Drum roll, please. A hundred years or less. A hundred years or less. Now, if you include fragments, not the whole copies, but fragments of the New Testament books, the earliest copies that we possess of the New Testament shrinks, the time gap shrinks to 50 years or less. 50 years or less. Let that sink in for a second. Within a lifetime, Meaning, some of the people who were really old at the time of the copying were actually there when Jesus was ministering. They were children, but they were there. Think about it. Within the same lifetime, 
These kids who grew up believing and having seen Jesus, they bear witness to the copies of the autographs. They bear witness to the, copy, to the copies being made of the original works of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. They bear witness to it. Meaning, they were there, they were eyewitnesses. If something was incorrect in the copy, they would say so. Wouldn't they? If somebody's asking for your account of a story and they tell the story all wrong, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, uh, excuse me, I was there, I saw it. You're not even close. And you're going to tell them how it actually is, right? Okay? You're going to let them know that it's wrong and rewrite it. Think about that. 50 years or less. 50 year or less time gap. 99.9% accurate to the original writings of the original authors. That's amazing. It's miraculous. There is no other book in the entire world that comes close to the accuracy and authenticity of the Bible. You want to talk about reliable, the Bible, by strictly scholarly measures, is the most authentic, most reliable, most accurate book in the entire world. Period. Homer's the next closest thing with 643 copies. And that's about monsters. Are you going to tell me that a historical document that talks about important Things, real things, showing real people with real flaws, changed by a real God, is not reliable simply because you don't believe in the supernatural. You don't believe in something higher and bigger than that which we can see and measure and touch. Interesting. So in our culture of all the critics of the Dan... Browns and their books that are skeptical of the Bible, which, don't get me wrong, The Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, all of his books, they're very provocative to read. They're very interesting. They make, they make for good literature, but they're fiction. They're not intellectually honest or factually based. They are historical fiction, meaning they took characters from history and made stuff up. It's fiction. It's false. We should not treat historical fiction as historical fact. Well, Satan may try to say through various atheists and agnostics that the Bible has been changed over the years, that it's been corrupted. It's not actually historically accurate or evidenced by all the ancient manuscripts and texts. You'll hear quite commonly in our culture. You can't trust the Bible because it was written by men. So you can trust your science book that was written by men? I see a contradiction. One of the things that pops up as well is that the Bible has been radically altered by men who wanted to control people through religion. You'll see this all the time when people talk about the Catholic Church and the church history, ancient church history. And they'll talk about church councils. You'll probably have heard of, or you will hear of at some point, the Council of Nicaea. And people will talk out of ignorance about this. Whenever they talk about, start talking about the Council of Nicaea, ask them which one. There's several. Okay? There have been many church councils, several of them at Nicaea. And honestly,
honestly, none of them had to do with what people think they had to deal with. None of these people have actually read the ancient documents detailing those church councils. They're available, but people don't do their research. The Bible wasn't changed. It wasn't altered. It wasn't added to. These church councils were more about practical application of the word of God. What does it mean for our lives? And what do we do with all the people who are teaching it incorrectly? Now I know another question that pops up fairly commonly is, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? You probably heard somebody say, the Bible contradicts itself numerous times. And atheists have commonly come up with the same list of contradictions. It's always funny to me encountering a young atheist who's part of what are, what's called new atheism. And they list these contradictions. And I can tell right off the bat how this is going to go, because I know exactly where they got their list of contradictions from. It's an atheism blog that's been around for quite a few years. And it's a very tired old list of contradictions that aren't actually contradictions. And if they actually bothered to read some scholarly sources, they would find that out, but they won't. Some people just don't want to know the truth because they don't want to change. But I challenge you. I want you to do some homework. There's a great book called Cold Case Christianity, written by a former atheist who converted to Christianity, not because he loved Christianity so much, but because he set out to disprove Christianity and couldn't. He was intellectually honest and became a Christian because of it. J. Warner Wallace, author of Cold Case Christianity, he does an excellent job of explaining things we sometimes think are contradictions and are actually what he says, further evidences of the New Testament, uh, of its reliability. Now, I know what you're thinking. What? What does that mean? Why don't you hear um, what he has to say before you question? You can actually pick this book up for yourself if you're interested in pursuing it at Lifeway or Barnes & Noble. I'm going to skip around a bit in his text for the sake of time, but you can read the whole passage for yourself. Um, all of the following, except uh, all of the following, excuse me, comes from chapter four, which is "Test Your Witnesses," which speaks of the New Testament books and letters, and talks about how they are written as eyewitness testimony, legal documentation for those who saw Jesus and his disciples, and the supposed contradictions between their accounts. Quote: If there's one thing my experience as a detective has revealed, however. It's that witnesses often make conflicting and inconsistent statements when describing what they saw at a crime scene. They frequently disagree with one another and either fail to see something obvious or describe the same event in a number of conflicting ways. The apparent contradictions are, used, are usually easy to explain once I learn something about the witnesses and their perspectives, both, both visually and personal, personally at the time of the crime. In the end, many things impact the way witnesses observe an event. A lot depends on where a witness is located in relationship to the action. We've uh, also got to consider the personal experiences and interests that cause some witnesses to focus on one aspect of the event and some to focus on another. I expect truthful, reliable witness eyewitnesses to disagree along the way. Unless you've worked a lot with eyewitnesses and have become familiar with the nature of apparent contradictions in eyewitness testimony, it's easy to assume that people are lying or are mistaken, 
simply because they don't agree on every detail or have ignored some facts in favor of others. If nothing else, we have to remember that an eyewitness account can be reliable in spite of apparent contradictions. You notice what he said? Apparent contradictions, not actual contradictions. There's a difference. There's a difference. Something can be apparently contradictory and not actually contradictory. The way that this is explained is easy. Physical positioning. Physical positioning. Think about it. If you witness a car accident from inside the car that's in the wreck, are you going to see the exact same thing as somebody standing on the side of the road? No. You've witnessed the same event. You've seen the same thing, essentially. But you've also seen very different things from different perspectives. You have seen from first-hand knowledge the car accident from inside. The other person who witnesses it from the road sees something entirely different. They saw the accident, but they weren't part of it. Very different physical positioning. You remember, I think it's two weeks ago now, I showed you a video of one of my favorite magicians, Harris III. And you remember the trick with the paper balls? He invited a young man named Joey to come up and sit in the chair. And he was taking these little wads of toilet paper, rolling them up, and he was asking him, which hand is it in? And all the time, he's secretly throwing the paper balls over the head of Joey. And Joey is sitting there mesmerized, thinking that he's seeing the most amazing magic trick. These paper balls just vanishing into thin air. The audience sees something different. They're seeing that while Joey is being distracted by Harris' hand over here, Harris set the toilet paper on top of his hands, or Harris threw the ball over his head. Whatever it is that he did to trick him, he sees something different than the audience. They're witnessing the same exact event, but from different physical positions. Now, if you separate Joey from the audience, they don't have any interaction, and you ask them to describe the experience, are they going to describe it the same way? Are they going to describe it the same way? Of course not. Joey's going to be like, it was awesome. I was sitting in the chair, and he put it in this hand, and then it wasn't there. It just vanished, poof, into midair, man. And the audience is going to be like, oh, it was hilarious. He was throwing paper balls over Joey's head the whole time, and Joey had no idea. Is Joey a liar because he says the balls vanished? No. Is the audience lying because they said that they saw the paper balls go up and over Joey's head? No. Both recount exactly what they saw and how they were a part of the experience. Apparent contradiction does not equal actual contradiction. I would ferociously argue that every apparent contradiction in the Bible is not an actual contradiction. They are the same events being seen from different perspectives of different people who have different upbringings, different careers, different backgrounds, and honestly, quite different worldviews. Remember how diverse a group of people Jesus draws to himself. You got Peter and others who are fishermen, probably never formally educated. You got people like Matthew, who's a tax collector, probably fairly well educated. He probably at least knew numbers well. 
You've got people like Luke. Who's Luke? We know he's well-educated because he's a doctor. And he sets out to travel and to confirm everything that has been told about Jesus. He sets out to, his whole book, his whole premise of, of the book of Luke and Acts is all about confirming what has been told. He's writing to what we think is his patron, Theophilus, saying, listen, everything that you've been told, everything that we've been told about this Jesus, I've confirmed. I talked to the eyewitnesses myself. And they said, yes, Jesus is in fact God, and he did in fact come back from the dead. Very different group of people, writing from very different perspectives. And they provide different testimony about what they saw. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Satan is a liar. He wants to trick you into discounting the Bible and staying away from it. Satan doesn't want you to read the Bible. He doesn't want you to pursue further information, documentation, and data. He wants you to write off the Bible. He doesn't want you to read it. He doesn't want you to value it. He doesn't want you to be anywhere near it. Why? Because Satan knows that it is one of the greatest tools in his arsenal to fight. Uh, it's one of his greatest tools in his arsenal is ignorance. One of the greatest tools in his tool belt is ignorance. If he can convince you not to educate yourself, not to pursue facts, not to learn and grow and develop in your Christian knowledge, in your Christian education, then he's already won. He's already won. He knows if he can get you to just be disinterested and to discount the Bible, he's already won. He doesn't have to get you to sin. He just has to get you to not believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. It's not factual. He didn't have to get you to go out and kill somebody. He didn't have to get you to go out and steal anything. All he's got to do is convince you not to read, not to learn, not to grow, not to care. Quite honestly, that's a pretty easy thing to do. There's so many distractions in our world that can keep us from the word of God. Guys, understand that when we're talking about the Bible, we are talking about a miracle. A miracle. It is a miracle that we have this book. You think about how persecuted the church was in the first two centuries about how they were murdered brutally many times. Some of the Christians were actually taken and made into living human torches at Nero's dinner parties. Do you understand what I'm saying? They would tar Christians and burn them alive. You think about that, that some of our brothers and sisters from the earliest days of the church were murdered brutally and hunted, not just taken from public places. Remember, the Christians met in private. They met in secret. They were hunted. In fact, Paul even started this way. Paul hunted Christians. It wasn't just the Romans after the Christians. It was the Jews. They hunted us, murdered us. How in the world did all of these documents that are ancient and from that very time period survive? It's a miracle. 
Don't buy Satan's lie. Don't trust what you heard on a blog somewhere. Do some actual scholarly research. Study the Bible, especially if you don't think it's true. I challenge you. You're here today. You're listening online. You think, oh, the Bible's not true. Read it. Then go confirm with historical sources. Read it. I dare you. You dig deep into it, you read it, you reread it, you do study on it, you look at commentaries, you study history, you see the historical context, and you will see how important the Bible is, how true it is, how reliable it is. If you have doubts about the Bible, don't let Satan win over your mind by simply getting you to do nothing. Do something. Go read it and read about it. Scripture is invaluable. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I challenge you. Go put it to the test. Go look at the Word of God. Go read it and study it. Learn and grow. Put your ignorance to death and with it the lies of Satan. And you'll see the truth. What is the truth? John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus' own words, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Pilate, when it came time to speak to Jesus before Jesus was crucified, he asked Jesus, what is truth? It's always such a heartbreaking question to me. That there standing before him is the living truth, Jesus, God in the flesh, and he doesn't see it. He doesn't see the truth. He doesn't really want Jesus to die. He finds him innocent. He says, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I see in this man warranting putting him on a cross. His blood is on your hands. But he never pursued. He didn't take the time to try to find the answer to his own question. What is truth? Wherein does truth lie? Jesus has the answer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that's not just a reference to the Bible. That is a reference to Christ himself. He is the word, the living word of God. The truth is this, folks. The Bible is God's word. It is his revelation of himself to his creations through his people. Satan doesn't want you to believe that. He doesn't want you to have truth because truth sets us free. The truth is that the Bible is ultimately all about God. And through his word, we see his love for us. Even though we don't deserve it, even though we don't merit it, he gives it to us. We see the truth in the Bible.
that God came to walk as a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and that he died to make a way for sinners to be saved. And today, maybe you've been thinking about that for a long time. Maybe you've been running this over in your head, you've been doing your research, you've been doing your reading, and God has convicted you. He's put it in your mind, and you just can't shake it. This is truth. That's you. This is a time for you right now. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, if you believe what God has to say about making payment for you, about atoning for your sin, then this is an opportunity right now to believe the truth and to respond to it. If you are ready to declare Jesus as Lord, to trust him, this is the time. Won't you trust him? Won't you believe in him? Won't you follow him? If you're ready, come forward as we stand and sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.